Hello and welcome to another episode of Blowing Cartridges Podcast, the gaming podcast where we dive into the issues surrounding gaming culture and the games themselves. I'm Brendan Tam and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Zach Clark. So, Zach, we're actually back into a rhythm of recording these podcast episodes and uh, I know it's the dead of winter over there in Australia, but uh, how's it all been going lately? It's good. Um Today, I think winter, it's either breaking or it's just good luck. I was able to wear just one, like, layer. So I just wore my, my hoodie rather than I had been wearing a hoodie and then, like, another jacket on top of it for most of the last month or two. Um, sun was shining, so it's 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 good. Yeah. Oh, I'm over here in solidarity with you because even though it's supposedly summer, as you can see, I'm wearing a hoodie as well. So <laughs> it's probably not much difference in terms of weather right now, funnily enough. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, us humans, we like a little bit of sun. Um, something that doesn't like sun, though, are video games. I hate uh, seeing my, my game boxes or, or video game consoles uh, weathered through uh, sun, if that makes sense. That weird, like, sort of yellowy color, or if it's like a gray NES or something that happens over time. <laughs> and that is a brilliant segue, Zach. I have to give you uh, credit for that one, because our topic today is on video game preservation and particularly earlier in July a report came out from the Video Game History Foundation and the Software Preservation Network where uh, they conducted a research report over the last year and uh, the main headlines that went around the video game community and there's plenty of articles on various gaming publications and YouTube videos is that their claim is that 87% of classic video games released in the United States are in their terms critically endangered because they are not currently available to purchase in any collections or on any or various digital platforms and the like. And their their definition of a classic video game is games released before 2010. So I know for me that that, that makes me feel very, very old and I'm sure you share those um, thoughts. But I thought it's a, it'd be a good idea to dive into this as a topic to explore well what are our thoughts on video game preservation uh should all these games be is it realistic to think that every single game should be accessible all the time and uh on what grounds and i guess to what degree should they be accessible should they be purchasable on all storefronts do developers and publishers have a responsibility of making all the games they have i guess the rights to available and accessible and there's all manner of different topics and subtopics to this along the way. So to start things off, what what are your general thoughts on this topic, Zach? Yeah, I mean, my general thoughts, I mean, I think it would be odd if anyone took a view that it's it's a good thing that um, games are hard to access and are not well uh, archived and, and made available to people. I think everyone really should be on board with the idea of making sure games are available and as accessible as they can be for as long as they can, uh, you know, because it's a fairly new medium compared to other artistic mediums, literature, you know, and and sort of painting and art and music all going for, you know, hundreds of years, uh, if not maybe thousands, really, when you think about it. And then obviously movies 
probably in the in the triple digits uh you know maybe pushing over 100 at the, this point um I'm sure somebody can tell me the exact amount of time since the first um film and if we think about um how much effort and time and resources go into preserving all those mediums it's a real shame that it doesn't feel like the same level of effort has been put into games when you know we had a, a lot of the tools a lot of the resources to do so back when you know the earliest games came to be yet due to i guess perceptions of them maybe being a toy or something it's just not been given the focus it could have that would have resulted in a much better position than what you just described today because that yeah 87 percent figure of anything pre-2010 is is quite a, a shocking statistic um whenever you you know first heard it yes and there's a, there's a few different points there to unpack and i think it is good to compare the medium to movies because yes film has existed for over 100 years now but to put my historian's hat on briefly there's a lot of similar issues actually for early films as to early video games in that there are a lot of early films that are lost or if you were to want to go watch them, well, they aren't going to necessarily be digitised in that you'll probably have to go to an archival library or I guess a dedicated venue to actually view the film. And yes, the argument would be, well, games are different in that a film is generally not going to be longer than two, three, four hours, but playing a game could be longer. So, And I know the Video Game Foundation in their report, they actually do mention that in that the report doesn't really have any suggestions or recommendations per se, because I did go through and read the report, but it does. it's more just, I guess, in their words, it's a, it's a survey of what the situation currently is in terms of accessibility and availability of these, of these games. So they they try in many ways to, I guess, outline what the differences are between games and films. And some of the points I do agree with, I think there is some, it is fair to state. But on the other hand, I think in terms of technology and licensing and rights issues, I think you're never going to have a situation where as much as we want to, that you're going to have everything available in a digital format from your home being accessible and I don't and I think that's that that's an unrealistic standard to think that that is possible in my opinion. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of layers to unpack as to why that's the case. Um I think I think it is worth acknowledging that I, I think it is genuinely impossible to keep every game accessible and even, you know, archived in some fashion. Uh, not just because of what's we've lost already, but purely even if we were going forward, I don't think we can capture everything. And that, and that's that's not to be defeatist. It's just, I think, the reality of the situation, uh, and it's just true of other mediums, right? As you said, we've lost films to time. Um, even some fairly recentish films, like films, you know, I'm sure people could think of uh, seeing as a kid or when they were a younger adult or whatever it may be, are probably either very challenging to find or... Um, you know, flat out, just not available at all. Uh, particularly if you go into that less, you know, big budget blockbuster and more into indie films and that. Um, and of course, if we looked at music and movies, uh, sorry, music, uh, literature and music and art, uh, those would have, I mean, just due to the sheer amount of time that those art forms have existed, we would have lost, you know, oh, 
so much uh, just because, again, it's not been necessarily a focus. So I think it's just worth acknowledging up front, we're definitely not going to be able to capture and store every game uh, for the rest of time as much as we would love to. But I think once you move past that point, it helps to be a bit more productive in the thought process of what do we store, what do we keep, what do we need to make accessible, and how do we do that in my mind? Um, Because often I find a lot of policy stuff can get really caught up with um, worrying too much how to do the perfect thing, and then you end up doing nothing. Yes, you sacrifice, well, actual achievable goals for pursuing the perfect, which you're never going to actually achieve. So I I 100% agree with you there. And with that in mind, I think uh, it is worth unpacking some of the sort of, I guess, concepts brought up, and not just in this, you know, uh, specific uh, research paper done by the... the, um, is it the Video Game History Foundation? Have I got that right? I'm yes, blanking. it is. Yeah, that's it. Um, but obviously other talks and stuff that the, the team there have done over the years and other parties interested in that preservation space. And a lot of what they're focusing on is a few things. One is obviously just purely, you know, what is uh, has been archived and what hasn't. I mean, if we think about stuff we've lost, there's a, re- there's a few really obvious uh, examples, right, in, in this, the space where in the last few years you would have seen a massive amount of content just wiped off. Mobile games, for example, we see, you know, thousands of them <laughs> released probably every year and then probably, you know, hundreds to thousands no longer accessible or playable just due to updates to iOS or Android, uh, which is quite, you know, an, a, a common occurrence. You know, we just accept that what it is there are there are games i remember playing when i first got my first smartphone that i you know can't easily access even uh, other than if i you know dig up my iphone 3 and hope that it still functions i suppose because <laughs> uh, even they just you know haven't been updated to work on a more recent um uh, ios device and then another really obvious example was a few years ago when flash got made um obsolete, I suppose, is the right term. And, you know, again, I don't know about you, Brendan, but I've spent a lot of time playing Flash games. Excuse me, my dog has a squeaky toy. I'm going to grab it off him so he stops squeaking. Anyway. (laughs) But, yeah, I I don't know about you, Brendan, but, you know, when I was a kid, I played a lot of Flash games on, you know, Newgrounds or uh, just various other sites. uh, And a lot of those got wiped when, um, yeah, Flash became you know, obsolete. And some, again, some of the, the bigger ones have been somewhat preserved by being ported or retooled to other other systems. And I, I'm, I'm sure if we Googled it, there'd be a very um, capable sort of flash emulator or sort of uh, tool that would allow you to access or play some games again, but there would still be many, many lost because, you know, the perception of those games was certainly lesser than that of what's releasing on an Xbox or PlayStation on Steam or, or a Nintendo system for that matter. Well, exactly. I remember spending many uh, afternoon on websites like, well, as you mentioned, Ugrounds and Miniclip and all those uh, Flash-based uh, websites are collated video games. And I think the sad reality is a lot of those are and will be lost and a lot of them will be ones that people will re- people who've played a lot of them and fondly remember them will try to, I guess, keep the flame alive and try to preserve them and try to, I guess, note down their recollections and the like. But 
I think that is a facet of the video game industry that is going to be is very difficult to keep alive. And you see that through, I guess, in contemporary times with the rise of indie games, the rise of indie developers, is that there's websites like Itch.io and the like that have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of games that a lot of them will be ones that only a small handful of people will know of about and actually experience. And that, I guess, there's the reality is if that website ever went down or the person who developed those games took the games off the website, well, they are in many ways lost to a degree. So it, it, there's, there's all these different tiers in many ways that it's like what you mentioned with film earlier and indie films is that everyone, anyone can get a camera together and make a film and release it to an extent, put it on YouTube, put it on the internet. And the d- dynamics around preserving that is difficult. And I think there's a lot more dilemma. The digital age has created a bigger dilemma around this in that in the past, for example, if I was a hobbyist photographer and took lots of photos just of everyday things, of events in my community and the like, well, in many ways, that's actually not too difficult to preserve as long as I kept all the negatives and the film film reel um, film reels in a suitable uh, in a suitable storage condition, storage. and that can end up in an archive or a museum or a library or what have you down the line, and that can be used as a historical reference and a historical source going forward. And but with with the digital age, there's a lot more. Because we don't, yes, physical medium degrades and can be destroyed and then you lose it. But digital is not necessarily the solution as well. And I think the rea- because digital has made it a lot easier to create creative medium and create creative endeavors, it, it, I think it becomes a lot harder to actually collate everything together and and store it and maintain it. If, I guess, if the goal is to try to collect everything Um, out there and it does go back to that question of all what should be maintained what should be kept what should be stored because the reality is you can't store everything but any criteria as we mentioned in the previous episode is ultimately going to be arbitrary and I think that that really does apply to everything in many ways but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have criteria just you need to recognize that there is an arbitrary nature to it yeah i mean i think it's one of those things where there's a there's a sort of uh i don't know if it's an obvious criteria but like i think most people would agree the more culturally uh impactful a game is the more important it is i think to preserve it right because i think it's it's much easier to show and tell right it's easier to say hey here's you know this game that was incredibly popular at this point in time and it influenced all these other games going forward it influenced all these people and just the way they thought the way they acted for a period of time um but i guess the other thing is usually and there are exceptions for various reasons we'll get into those are some of the better preserved ones anyway right like anyone under the sun can probably access a version of super mario brothers or tetris will they be able to access you know, a NES authentic version, maybe, maybe not, depending on how authentic you need it to be. Um, but, you know, they'll be able to access it and at least see enough of what the 
you know, people back in the the 80s saw when they played it and it was this big, you know, phenomenon. So I think there's that's that's maybe something positive, right? That there is some natural selection, I suppose, that is working as intended and making sure these really big, impactful, popular experiences are somewhat archived and made available, whether that's by the companies that own them or museums or uh, fans and other people in a in a different space, I'm sure we're going to have to touch on at some point in this uh, in this podcast. The question of to what in what manner these games are playable is an interesting one, in my view. In terms of, well, if you think about it, I guess in a lateral way, should these games be experienced as they were when they first released, or is it okay to slightly change it? slightly enhance it, add some tweaks to it. I guess to what degree does the actual original experience have to be maintained? So, for example, hardware, there was various hardware limitations for older hardware and even newer hardware. There's always going to be hardware limitations. And if we add save states, if we we get rid of, I guess, sluggish performance on particular games, is it still the original game or is it something new? And does it, like does the original, in essence, need to be maintained and preserved? And is that what should be accessible to, and I guess not just from a historical sort of gaming historian viewpoint, is that the version that should be available to the general public? Or do we accept that things like emulators are going to, at a base level, a lot of emulators will have slight tweaks and enhancements to these experiences, to these games. And a purist could argue, well, that's no longer the original game anymore because it's it's performing slightly different. It doesn't look exactly the same. And you see that a lot in in the retro gaming community when it comes to upscaling video games and having things like your uh like frame masters and uh rad 2x's and all different tools that you can use to upscale retro consoles to modern hd 4k tvs that the purists argue that well this isn't the original experience anymore because you're not getting the visually the crt effect for example the the color saturation is different like it, it it's not exactly the same so from a preservation um, point of view what, what's your thoughts what to what level do you think the yeah. original experience needs to be maintained uh it's interesting because so uh, the video game history foundation probably the key face behind it frank Cefoli gave a talk a few years ago at, i think gdc effectively around games preservation i saw a few clips of it before recording this this podcast and he made the point that yeah roms or uh ports or whatever aren't always going to be they aren't enough. You need to sort of make the original accessible and playable. However, while I agree with that idea, I think it's also not practical on a large scale. I think there should definitely be, you know, original hardware maintained and held in uh, muse- sorry, museums or in libraries around the world uh, that people can access when they need to and see a very authentic experience because it doesn't as you said it isn't just about you know maintaining a again an nes and an nes cartridge it's also maintaining a crt tv uh and at a bare minimum so there's there's 
a lot of equipment, I guess, you need to, you know, keep and maintain. And a lot of that equipment is now effectively requiring hobbyists or very niche experts to repair and keep functioning because obviously the original manufacturers do not do that. Um, so it, it is potentially quite a costly exercise to keep that running. I can't see how technology would be able to replicate that experience via the internet. Yes, we could have some weird pseudo cloud gaming setup, which is basically playing, I guess, a a original, you know, piece of hardware from a from a library somewhere in the world and streaming it to your, you know, your computer or your tablet or TV, whatever it might be. But even then, I, unless we get the internet to a point where it's it's virtually, it's literally instant, not just close enough, it's never going to truly capture the authentic experience. So I think we're always going to have to be gated by having a few very specific locations that do try to make accessible those authentic original experiences with the correct hardware and, the, and you play it as it was back in the day. Uh, there'll probably have to be some controller who can play though. I mean, similar to, you know, I don't think anyone can rock up to, you know, a national library and access the the first edition prints of, of every single book they, they want because they don't want just everyone fingering through it and damaging it. There's got to be specific purposes and approved for specific reasons. I think that's reasonable. I also think it's it's not needed for everyone to access and play the the OG. I think the the need for that's pretty niche, and it probably is primarily for people in the industry who need that context for whatever reason. But say you and I, who maybe just need to or want to have a cultural touchstone point reference from either you know before we were born or or when we were too young to play games or just a game we missed because we were busy playing other things. I think things like ports uh, to more modern systems or just emulators are, I think, enough in terms of conveying the majority of what there is to convey. Uh, and again, that would be similar to other, you know, mediums, right? Like think of art, you know, the Mona Lisa, I think probably most people who are listening know what the Mona Lisa looks like because you would have seen digital scans, digital photos, digital everything of that online. You probably see it in TV shows, right? That's probably where I first, first saw the Mona Lisa. Um, but you can't replicate going to the Louvre and seeing it. Sure, with technology, they've made it pretty close. So you can probably get more detail seeing a, a, an up, a high definition scan that gets you actually to see the, you know, individual sort of like strokes from the, from the paintbrush uh, online and just zooming in. That's probably exists. <laughs> Um, and certainly not what, if you, if you're not a, you know, uh, a particularly special person, you're not going to get even that close to the Mona Lisa if you've ever been to the Louvre. But at the same time, we just accept that the only way to see the real deal painting is to go to this one very specific place in Paris that has an entry fee. And then if you want to see it up close, you've got to be somebody important and get a lot of approval. I'm sure that 99.999% of people in the world will never ever get so and i think that's fine i think that's just the reality of what these things are uh and i think again this is where i was saying we don't need to strive for perfect we just need to sort of strive for good enough and that's why again ports roms emulation to me that's the it's good enough uh outcome we need to to be pushing for i agree because there's an aspect in the underlying question there in that 
is the original from a I guess a general consumer gamer point of view of you and I wanting to experience older games as you state, is the original experience actually necessarily the optimal one we actually want to play and experience again or for the first time if it's something we missed? Because for example, we're well we're both Australian, we grew up in Australia, played games in Australia. There's the whole power region versus NTSC region games from the 90s, early 2000s, where you had the difference between 50 hertz and 60 hertz TVs. And some games were locked to 50 hertz, which a lot of gaming enthusiasts argue is an inferior experience because it's it's to do with the speed of, well, you, you probably know better than I, but it's to do with the frame speed of the te- television and how quickly the game can be, well, well, the game can run. So 50 hertz is slower than 60 hertz. So there's different experience there in itself. And like, should that original experience be maintained, it should be the one accessible to people in power regions because that's what they first experienced. A lot of gamers will say no. And when publishers have, in some cases, separated the American and power releases for re-releases like Nintendo did for some games on the virtual console, people got upset and argued, well, this is an inferior, even though this was the original experience, it's the inferior one. So I think this to- this topic definitely has the two aspects to it, is that, of course, there's a very heavy preservation aspect, which is what the Video Game History Foundation a lot of the times focuses on. But I think there's the more mainstream factor that more gamers and the general public are more interested in, in that having these games available that I can go on uh, eShop or go on Steam or go on GOG or go on no, uh, a range of different digital platforms, download the game and play it because it might be something I played when I was five year old, five years old with my dad and I have very fond memories of it and I want to relive that nostalgia or a whole range of different reasons why I want to play those games. And, uh, and I guess in, from that perspective, going back to one of our earlier points, you don't really need to preserve, I guess, have accessible and preserve those more really, really niche games that only a handful of people ever knew about or played. Because, yeah, yes, again, putting my history historian's hat on, like it's still very important to recognize those games existed, even though they might be minor in terms of who played them. There's still some significance there, but at the same time, there is that. There's still that underlying commercial aspect to video game preservation and what games are available and what what's not yeah and that that's probably a good point to now talk about the pros and cons of um the commercial aspect right because that is one of the barriers that we largely hit in terms of why there are so many games unavailable right uh, and again this is not like a video game industry specific issue it is it is somewhat broader than that though there is one point that is very specific to games compared to other mediums but you know logically games and game companies when they first put out a product they don't really want it to be easily pirated which makes sense because they want you to pay money for it by virtue of doing that though it is it does make it challenging for future generations to potentially access the game as you pointed out before digital distribution of games the only real issue with it from a preservation aspect is that there is DRM of some kind on it, right? If if there was no DRM and you could easily 
take your files off of, you know, uh, a switch and just move them to another switch uh, or copy them or whatever you want to do, then it would be less of an issue down the track when, you know, Nintendo's eShop shut down and you can't connect to a server to verify that you are in a particular game uh, because it wouldn't require to. You could just dig and download a, a copy of a game onto some sort of card and load it onto your Switch and play it. But unfortunately, when companies either you know go bust, if they're if that's the situation, or again, even if it's not that they go bust, but they're still an active company, they're not going to put any effort into unlocking and making freely available all their games on their old systems. It's not a thing they're incentivized to do. So, an attempt for companies to make sure that they are, in my opinion, fairly compensated for the games they're making in whatever way they choose to to monetize them. It inadvertently also makes it more challenging to keep games readily accessible, particularly on their original hardware, if they're a console or handheld game compared to PC, just due to those efforts to to protect their own IP. With that said, I feel like I'm just stating something because I don't know the solution. I don't have an obvious <laughs> solution. Like there's this, there's no win-win here, as far as I can tell, where you you can have your cake and eat it too. Someone loses out and right now it's it's i guess us the gamer we're losing out by making it being harder for us to access games on obsolete systems from obsolete from the perspective of the the company making them but on the flip side if they didn't introduce all those controls i'm almost certain the entire video game industry would function differently uh, if they weren't allowed to do any efforts to protect their games uh, from piracy it would I genuinely think it would be a much different landscape and there would be a lot less money in it, which also means a lot less people making games for us is my, my personal theory. It would become almost more hobbyist and less um, a viable career in some respects just due to that. And in many ways, it will be similar to what happened in the mid to late 2000s where a lot of publishers and developers moved away from PC because of piracy and because of you had that period from the mid to late 2000s where digital distribution did start and started to take off, but it hadn't met critical mass yet. So there was still, I guess, PC gaming became less desirable to supply in terms of making games available and the like because of the distribution model. And a lot of publishers instead focused on console games because they're more closed ecosystems. Yes, you can have... Um, piracy on consoles but um, in that period it did generally involve things like mod chips and the like which weren't widely available so it was uh, a more profitable proposition to pivot from pc to consoles and i know this is a completely different topic but i think in the modern day that ish that gap of um in the capability and the possibility of hacking modern consoles and pirating games is it is a lot more doable and a lot easier than it previously was. So to your point, publishers don't really have another platform to pivot to like they did previously pivot away from PC. Yes, they've gone back because of, um, I guess, the distribution model for PC games has become um, a lot more profitable in many ways because there's virtually no overhead. Uh, You don't, like, that's why you can't go to an EB Games or JB Hi-Fi and buy a PC game anymore because... That, that distribution model completely died. And yes, to an extent, 
console games are probably going to go that same direction as well, which in a convoluted way goes back to the topic at hand in that another aspect that you kind of didn't like kind of um, brushed upon is the aspect of, well, to what extent should the original game as it exists be accessible to play? Because you have things like DLC, you have things like online updates. And when stores go down, like the Nintendo 3DS eShop and the Wii U eShop, yes, if I have a physical copy of those games, I can still play them. But if if it was a game that there was DLC available or there were day one patches or six months after release patches that dramatically changed the experience or enhanced the experience or there were tweaks or what have you, that that is no longer accessible. And yes, this report and this report doesn't brush on that at, at all because it's a post a pre twenty ten report. But I think that is going to become a really big issue and a big challenge to surmount from a video game preservation perspective, and not just from a preservation perspective, but the ability of gamers to and enthusiasts to actually go back and experience those games that unless you back up everything, you have original hardware and before stores close, you go crazy and spend hundreds of dollars to get those games and all the DLC and updates like a lot of people did with 3DS in March this year, that that is lost and no longer accessible. Yeah, I mean, that's that's 100% true. And as you said, Brendan, it's going to get more problematic as more and more games are games as services is becoming just more popular, right? So they're ever evolving, ever changing. Uh, and particularly when they're, you know, you obviously you touched on just getting DLC and patches, but even, what's even harder is the server-based games, right? So, you know, like MMOs are the really obvious example where you would need for somebody to, again, set up a, a private server on an old client of a game, which is a lot of effort. It's not free, nor is it necessarily easy to do. But then you also need a lot of players to join you on said server and actually play with you to even come close to replicating uh, a particular, you know, version of a game in a particular state. And that's just not going to be doable, right? So you, you're you're largely in the hands of the developer who, or the publisher either, or whoever's the decision maker here. But uh, in terms of what you get to play and what version, you, you know, like Overwatch is a really like hot topic example at the moment, right? Because they replaced Overwatch 1 with Overwatch 2. It, it's not like a separate game. If you try to launch Overwatch 1, you do not get that. And so Overwatch 2 is here. I think it, they removed one. Uh, I think the teams used to be six. Now they're five, if I recall. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but it's something like that. So it's, it is quite fundamentally different to to the original Overwatch. And... I'm sure, again, if I Googled it, I could find some, you know, forum where there's a uh, someone hosting Overwatch 1, um, you know, private servers. Uh, but even then, I'm at the whim of which version they want to play because it's probably not launch day version. Uh, it's probably whatever they think is the optimal, you know, iteration of that game. Uh, and so it becomes incredibly, incredibly challenging to maintain all versions of of a single game and uh, again the efforts being done to do so seem pretty minimal and you bring up a great example with mmorpgs that the efforts are from the fan community from the hardest of the hardcore from the enthusiasts those are the ones that try to keep those experiences alive and 
in doing so, often they run into opposition from the developers and the publishers and the rights holders, which you've seen in the past with World of Warcraft before WoW Classic came out. And then even with WoW Classic, that wasn't, and I guess that goes back to one of my earlier points, WoW Classic was an attempt to recreate the original World of Warcraft experience, but with tweaks, it was never even from day one the exact experience that you would have got in 2004 if you booted up World of Warcraft. And the explanation there is, well, most people that played World of Warcraft and had fond memories about Vanilla WoW, probably even the, even they didn't even want that experience. They They did want some modern improvements and tweaks. So in some ways you're never... In some ways, that original, pure version is never going to be the desirable one. And again, with Overwatch, yes, Overwatch 1 is no longer available. It's now pushy to Overwatch 2. But even before Overwatch 2 was launched, you couldn't play the original Overwatch when it first released. There was many tweaks, there were many changes along the life of Overwatch, which some of the fans liked, some of the fans thought were terrible. Your player base always changes and alters in that some people that started Overwatch fell completely off it because they claimed it was no longer the game they enjoyed. I'm sure there were people that jumped on and thought everything that was changing was great and it was a really good experience. But the the reality is, like, it's I think with some of these games as a... Well, with games as a service and a lot of these games, it's very difficult to actually pinpoint the well, what the original is. And from a preservation and accessibility availability point of view, like how do you maintain in a time capsule these experiences in a vacuum? Like would you have to, I guess in some ways, in some way preserve every single iteration, every single version of the of like patch 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 of a game to be authentic? Or is that just, I guess, going completely off the reservation and just, again, what you said at the start, pursuing the perfect when the perfect is, like, impossible. And I guess that's one example of being very particular in a way that's just not helpful to anyone. And it was just not achievable. Yeah, and it was an interesting... I I wish I could remember who they were because it was probably four years ago or more at a PAX, uh, and it must have been a live one. Um, so, so, and it wasn't last year, so it was definitely a while ago. Um, there, there was a a talk from people in the Australian uh, space who are looking at archiving uh, Australian made video games. But anyway, a point they made is what's really valuable, and some ways equally valuable, is footage and recordings of people playing games, uh, because as you pointed out. Brendan, even if you somehow got a particular version of a game playable again, it doesn't necessarily capture the same elements, like particularly if we're talking a multiplayer game, right? Like, again, if I found an Overwatch, you know, fan server somewhere running a particular version of it, it would not, just due to the nature of who's there, who's playing, it would not be the same experience if I was back in, you know, 2000, I don't know, whatever. 17 or something, I don't remember when Overwatch came out, 18, 19, something like that, playing that version of the game with the, you know, thousands of people that play Overwatch, you know, at that point in time, Uh, because it'll probably be a server with maybe dozens at best, hundreds maybe at most, uh, 
people who are all probably very good at the game because they're that dedicated to go and play on a fan server, right? So it's just that in terms of, again, to your point from a historian perspective, to, to try and capture elements about what impact did it have on people? What were people at the time uh, thinking about this? Videos are in some ways better because, again, just jumping into a game doesn't necessarily give you the full context of what it was like to play it at that point in time when, again, it's a live service game, so people are, it's all multiplayer, or even if it's not right, like playing, I've been playing Pikmin a lot recently and <laughs> watching a lot of Pikmin videos, uh, and someone made a really good point that, like, when Pikmin 1 launched, that was crazy impressive because you had a hundred little characters individually <laughs> functioning on a console game, which was not a thing that console games could do uh, at that point in time. Uh, not to the extent where you could literally place like a Pikmin in a hundred different locations around a map, but that's not particularly impressive now. So if you just gave a kid today, you know, Pikmin one on, on switch, uh, which you could do, they're not necessarily going to get why that was cool. Uh, they might see other value in it, but they're not going to understand, you know, the impact of if you had a video of somebody playing it at like E3 uh, or something for the first time and going, Jesus, that's really crazy, <laughs> like that you can do that. Or, you know, I'm sure you felt the same when you saw like water on a GameCube or a PS2 or, or an Xbox for the first time, how that was just, whoa, like water, it's clear not like blue and it like kind of feels realistic. That was, that was mind blowing. But again, you show it to someone today, they're not going to see the impact it had on us who were alive and playing those games in the moment. So we're very lucky in some respect that YouTube and Twitch have really blown off because that's meaning more and more and more content is being recorded and stored somewhere. Again, a lot of that's probably also getting deleted. So we are, we do have to focus a little bit on trying to keep as much of that stored somewhere but that is a a potential supplement to having every version of a game available to play at all times is at least having sort of these recordings of people playing it to see how they feel to see how they interacted in multiplayer games because i think that helps to give you probably the content context you're looking for if you are someone studying the field and studying the history of it versus you know, I can't see there being there would anything else would be incredibly niche. And that, and to be fair, studying the history of video games is probably already niche. So when I say it's even more niche than that, I mean like it'd be incredibly niche to need a very specific version of a game just so you can jump in and play it. I would I would say. Well, yes, I think that's that's going to be a really unrealistic goal to try to achieve. That again, a complete segue and not a well, not even a segue, just uh, a tangent that's not relevant to this topic and is bordering another topic. The action, the field of this, uh, of um, the history of games is actually a very quickly expanding one. So it's probably going to become a lot more mainstream in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I think that's just because the definition of what a gamer is and who play games, as we've talked about before, is is broadening. It's it's broader than ever and is only going to get larger and larger. It's no longer a niche. So I, I mean, that's what I was just going to say. Just people like you who are gamers growing up and are delving into historical fields, right? Not that you're specifically doing games, but like you're learning the skill set of how to be a historian um, and you love games. So it's there's going to be more people like that who take those those two 
things and combine them, which is, whereas previously in the 80s, there would be people who are historians who, again, thought games were dumb. So they didn't think it was a thing that they had to had to archive necessarily. Um, so I, I agree, it's going to get more popular just by virtue of more gamers growing up and entering into the academia fields and, and research fields and historian fields, I would have, would have thought. Well, exactly. And hopefully that will help to, I guess, create solutions for some of these problems and questions like how do we preserve the, the cultural milieu of video games like your Twitch streams, like your YouTube videos, like your video impressions and the like, and even website reviews and opinion pieces. These are all relevant sources for if if a historian wanted to go back and look at the impact of a game or to look at how a game was developed or just reception and questions like that. Because you, you see that with newspapers are a key historical text for any historian that works on periods where newspapers exist, that those are things that are always going to have value for a various um, amount of topics from various perspectives. So there's all these moving paths and all these questions to preservation and archiving and putting things in the libraries that goes beyond just the source code of the game, goes beyond the ability to play these games. But I think that the ability to play the games is really the centre of this particular topic. And mm. I, I, for one, I'm a big fan of of studios and developers and publishers like your M2s, like your Digital Eclipse, like even Limited Run Games, which I know has its critics and I understand some of those criticisms, but they, they are all, and I think they're actually getting a bit better in terms of actually making the games they release more accessible. It's not just about catering to niche collectors anymore. Like, yes, they, that's always going to be part of the business model, but it's also about making games accessible, making games playable, and also taking into account that from, I guess, a nostalgia point of view that, yes, consumers, gamers, they want to be able to play games, that they grew up with wanting to be wanting to have the ability to play games that they might have missed, but they do want to have modern polish to those games. They don't want the exact experience that existed in the eighties, nineties and early two thousands. And I think that's yes, from a purist point of view, that's anathema, but I think from a gamer point of view, that that's, that is a good, it's op, optimally you'd have the option to toggle it off and on that you can choose which version to play. But I think, it is good to update these games to make them more playable, to make them more enjoyable that you can, I guess, get to that point where it's like film and well, we're, we're pretty enthusiastic. We're pretty neat. In some terms, niche enthusiasts in some parts of the video game landscape in that like there, there is joy to be had in, um, and pleasure to be had from playing what some people would call antiquated games. You know, we're not all just about playing the newest of new releases. And I, and that's an interesting aspect here. Yeah. I mean, like I think of, you know, when I was young, like I think I might've said this on the podcast before, but like I, I a big Nintendo fan, obviously. And one of the things that really spurred my interest in absorbing Nintendo content was Smash Brothers and particularly Melee when that came out. And that just wanted me to, you know, inspired me to want to try games in, in every franchise that had a character basically was was the thought process and then so things like the virtual console when that was a thing on the way was was amazing because it meant i got to try out kid icarus or 
ice climbers and they were bad, <laughs> but, you know, I got to t try them and they were fascinating, if that makes sense, um, to me at least. And again, bad subjective. I'm sure a lot of people think they're still very good games, but they're definitely antiquated. I don't think anyone would uh, deny that. Uh, so I think, yeah, I agree. There is incredible value. It's, it's, a, it's different to play a game for like that fascination aspect. And, and I recognize where in the minority, because most people are just like, I want to play a game that's going to be fun. They're not fascinated to see a game from 1986 or whatever that uh, was the start of a franchise they now love today. They just don't care that much. Uh, but yeah, the, the more of that that's available, the better. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's always a bit of a, how do I put it? It always seems to be like a, a rolling door because, uh, and this comes back to this, this the issues with the, the corporate structure, the capitalism that sets the framework of the industry. We have this, this challenge where, you know, companies are keen to re-release things and recharge you for them. You know, like I've probably bought Super Mario Brothers one like five times, like <laughs> over my life at least, uh, from virtual console to game. I got it the Game Boy Advance version when I was a kid. That was the first time I, I think I played the original Super Mario Brothers. I have it in Animal Crossing, probably, if that counts. Uh, and who knows what else? I, I pay for Switch Online for sure, and it's on there. Uh, and I bought an NES Mini. There we go. That's how you get to, to five or six, whatever that number was. Uh, and companies want to do that. And But the challenge is for every company that wants to do that and does do that, there's probably dozens more that either the company doesn't exist or they aren't doing it uh, or the games are in some sort of legal sort of, you know, tang entanglement, particularly like licensed games, right? That it's just not feasible from a legal perspective, not a technical perspective to re-release them in any way. And so that's why we end up with this really frustrating situation where we have laws and systems in place to protect the rights of these games by the companies that own them so that they can re-release and they can continue to charge for them and be financially incentivized to do that. But still probably, as it says, like 86% of games aren't being re-released and there's, there's so many reasons for it. And a lot of them are not just technical. They are these legal reasons. Like GoldenEye only recently got re-released because they, a lot of people spent a lot of time and effort to come up with some sort of contract that we'll never see that allows it. And you can already see how that contract has impacted that release because the Xbox version does not have online. And the only reason I can think of that is because somebody in that negotiation said, we're only going to say yes if you don't have online. And you can guess which company that probably was. Um, but you can see how these legal frameworks can make it incredibly challenging. And I mean, again, think of just any licensed game, particularly when the license has shifted hands over years, you know, uh, like James Bond is just the perfect example because it's gone from, you know, Nintendo to EA to Activision to, I don't know if it's specifically with IO at the moment or if anyone could also license out and make their own James Bond game, but it just keeps moving and to, you know, access... I bet you can't access most of those old James Bond games anymore. I reckon GoldenEye is probably the only one maybe at this current state that you could uh, legally access. Um, I think you're yeah, right. Cause... I, I think all the other ones, are, like the 360 and PS3 ones, are probably long gone from their 
well, if they were ever on those digital stores, I don't think that'd be available anymore. Yeah, because because whoever originally published it, Activision EA, whoever lost the rights, uh, so they can't republish it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, who's who's the owner of Double uh, Is it MGM or is it just still like some estate of the original author? I don't, I don't uh, know. Probably doesn't matter. Eon Productions. Oh, yeah, well, there you go. Well, they pro- but they probably can't go and just take EA or Activision's work and put it up on on Xbox either, right? So they'd have to all come to some agreement to do that. And again, Goldeneye on the sixty four was probably the only one that ended up being culturally significant enough that uh, the the efforts were made to make that happen. Uh, and again, I'm sure there's there was incredible financial incentive to do that as well. But yeah, like it's just this this framework makes it incredibly difficult to allow it and and by the same token if you're then a fan who goes i know that you know the ea gold uh uh, james bond games are stuck in licensing hell i'm gonna just rip my copies and make roms of them and distribute them online because no one else is going to make them accessible you face potential you know, lawsuits yourself, right? Like, and that's, and that's, and you don't really have much defense in court at, in this, in the current world. So it, it, it actively disincentivizes you from doing it. Do people still do it? Of course. Like we can absolutely find ROMs and emulators to play all those games right now. Uh, but they are just one DMCA notice away from being taken down. Uh, and the individuals that did that, they could be up for, hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars, uh, despite it being a product that will never likely be legally sold again and could never probably generate any money for the companies that have those rights. It's just stuck, uh, which is a real shame. Yeah, you don't you don't paint a particularly positive picture there, Zach, <laughs> but I don't disagree with you at all. Once you start getting into those, I guess, the legal dimensions and all those fun topics and aspects, it's a it's a deep, deep hole to get into. And hopefully a topic, often we say topics that we'll discuss in future episodes, hopefully the legal aspects of the gaming industry is a topic that we never explore on this podcast. <laughs> At least not without a lawyer uh, that could maybe talk us through and, it. And a lot of alcohol. Yes, yes. But speaking of, and this is probably one of the areas I'm a little weak on in, in understanding, but I, from what I got from the report, it seems like there's there's also a challenge here in terms of, so libraries have uh, certain rights to store and distribute, you know, books, music, film, which are not extended to video games. And again, this report's very American focused, so that uh, is probably not consistent globally. I'm not 100% certain. Um, again, I don't know if, if you have a better understanding of the rights uh, of, of libraries on a global scale, Brendan, than I do. But that's probably the key thing this report feels like it's pushing for is to really establish the rights for libraries to not only archive games, because a lot of them, there are some that are archiving games. That's, we, we should acknowledge that but to distribute them uh, in a way that's not just purely, you know, come to my library and borrow a game or play it on-premises. It can also be some form of digital distribution, which, again, I'm not quite sure what that would be, whether that's some weird cloud streaming or whether that's actively distributing uh, ROMs in some sort of 
way or temporary licenses to play a digital copy of a game. Again, I feel like that sort of will have to be resolved, but I think step one is to give them the right to even explore that option because no one's going to invest in figuring out how to establish a digital online accessible library of games until they are actually told, yes, you can you can do this because it would just be a waste of, of time and money uh, for a lot of people. Yes, it's a really, it's a murky and complicated world and there is a lot of different legal frameworks around there. So, for example, if you wanted to go look at archival material, generally you do have to sign an agreement with the archival library that says that, well, your use of that material is purely for research uses and that if you were to use it for a commercial endeavour, like if you were to publish a book or even a journal article or there's some output that you generally need permission. And then it becomes even more murky when it comes down to things like images. There's all like often you will have to pay a library or a museum or an archive for the rights to republish images. So because there's so many different moving parts with video games, because there's that there's the entertainment aspect of it, there's the aspect that we mentioned at the start of the episode and is heavily pushed in the report that like you can't just swing by the library and play through a game in a day and then take some notes and leave if you're a researcher or something that well, particularly modern games will sometimes will last for well up to a hundred hours, even more, depending on what sort of game it is. And we talk about JRPGs and RPGs a lot on this podcast, and those are all long, heavy games. So to try to create a a way to actually have those accessible to people who not not just people who need access, people that might just be interested in having access to it for a whole range of reasons. I think there's a lot of different issues at play, different working parts to try to work through. And like like you suggest, perhaps there is a way to do it through the cloud. But even with books, it, like if I was if I wanted to look at a particular book, not all books are in ebook formats. Some books I'll have to go to a particular library or archive to go consult with it and look at it. Sometimes I'll be able to borrow that book out. Other times I can only consult the book in person physically. And I'd make the same argument that the Video Game History Foundation makes in that not all books you're going to be able to sit down and read through it in four, six, eight hours and then close it and be done with it and then go home. Sometimes you're going to spend days on a particular book, depending on how big it is, how intricate it is, whether it's handwritten or printed. There's all manner of, again, there's different working parts from a researcher perspective that I won't get into too much because, again, A, it's a completely different topic and B, I don't know how many of our listeners would actually find it interesting. But, again, I think there are definitely unique challenges at play when it comes to video games particularly and I think the the legal frameworks in America are one of them, which I don't particularly know much about, but apparently different to other mediums. But I think all mediums, all different facets of um, our cultural history, which video games are a part of, have all different challenges to them when it comes from a preservation, comes from an accessibility point of view. Now, I guess probably one of the questions a lot of people probably had after reading this this article is, you know, what what can an individual do about this? What can we do to help 
uh, preserve games? It's a, it's a really interesting question, I find, because there's probably not a lot that most people can do, but there's probably, I think, a few things we just need to think about and encourage uh, people to to do. And the first one, I think, is just continue to be very vocal. Uh, again, you know, whether it's to lawmakers or politicians or uh, key stakeholders in uh, in the industry, to as to why it's important to establish some proper archival and again accessibility uh, frameworks and and systems and establishments that will probably be non for profits. Again, just existing libraries could probably suffice with just some additional funding and a dedicated team to to video games uh, for those that don't already have one. I think being vocal and why that's important to you is probably the key thing, I would say, uh, to spread the word. I think there's also the aspect of there's a simple, well, if you think about, well, what can we do as gamers? What can we do as individuals? It comes down to if a publisher or developer re-releases games, re-releases collections, consider buying them. Consider putting your money where your mouth is in some ways. If in the past you had, you might have dabbled in emulation, you might have downloaded a ROM off the internet and played a particular game because that was the only way to access it and experience and play it. But now it's available on a, in, through a legitimate commercial channel, well, consider purchasing it. Go on an eShop or go on a GOG, buy the physical version if something like a Castlevania collection or a Mega Man collection comes out. Purchase it because, yes, you're not going to capture every single game as we've mentioned before. Yes, there's still all the different license and rights issues um, that will limit what games can be released. But if it's in the financial interest of developers and publishers to re-release games, they have the ability to re-release because they're going to make some money from doing so. It's not going to be a net net commercial loss. Well, they'll consider doing more of it because it's easy, well, relatively easy money for them to make. Or they'll give a digital Eclipse or an M2 the rights and ability to re-release those games digitally because there is some, there's there's cost advantages for them to do so. So, like, yes, I, I do agree with the report which states that, like, the problem isn't going to be able to be solved by corporations, by the market, by commercial enterprises. But I think there is a there's still there's still room for them to be able to do more in terms of making what games they can make accessible, and there just needs to be the incentive for them to do so. It's like with Nintendo and what well, the Game Boy family of um, systems and the games available there that they. The um, the Video Game History Foundation report states that only, I think, 20 or 25 of those games are accessible at the moment because the only way really to access them legitimately is through NSO, which has a very limited library of games after the Wii and 3DS eShops went offline with their virtual consoles. And I think the other aspect is is at least like whether it's you're on X as it's now called or or your social media channel of choice or however you like to absorb information it's it's make sure you you're tapped into these these key organizations that are making efforts to preserve games so that's 
you know, again, as you, you listed a few companies that do great at re-releases, Digital Eclipse, uh, it, Limited Run, yes, I think you should pay attention to them, whether you like their physical limited run FOMO sales model or not. They are bringing things digitally as well that have have not seen the light of day for a long time. So there are value there or anyone else whose who's focus is that. Um, and of course, you know, Video Game History Foundation, you should follow them. Uh, and I do want to call out two other things quickly because I imagine most of our listeners are Australian. The first off uh, is the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia does have a video game preservation effort. If you Google, you know, just Video Game Preservation Australia, you can find that and they have contacts for uh, their archivalist uh, and their, you know, details of their collection project there. Um, so if you also happen to just have a bunch of old Australian-made games sitting in your basement, you know, and you don't know what to do with them, reaching out to an organization like that is is great because you can then pass those on and donate them. Uh, and they then will put the effort into making sure they're preserved and available for future generations. Uh, and if you're in Melbourne, uh, I also highly recommend going to Acme, um, which is in Fed Square. They do a great job at having not just Australian games, but just, just a few games in general playable and accessible uh, on original hardware. I remember I think I played Hey You Pikachu for the first time at Acme, if I recall, uh, when they for some reason had that there and that never released in Australia. Um, but that's a really cool place to check out if you are ever in Melbourne. Uh, and I'm sure there might be some other places around uh, Australia, but that's certainly the one I, I hear about the most uh, myself. And so, you know, tune into those those key organizations, listen to what they're saying. And when they have a call to action, that is something you can do. Do that thing is, is probably, it's a simple advice, but uh, if they're saying this will help uh, in the effort to preserve more games, and it's something you're able to do, I would suggest following their advice because they're the experts in this whole effort. Couldn't agree with that more, Zach. And I think that's probably a good point to end this particular chapter of the Blowing Cartridges podcast for this episode. So if people want to support our podcast and follow us and find out what we're doing, how can they do that, Zach? Yes, well, you can find us on the artist formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, uh, at Blowing Cartridge. Uh, I've got that wrong, haven't I? I've probably I've got the the new new social media name correctly, but I've probably stuffed our own one up. At Blowcart Blow Pod. Pod. That's it. At Blowcart Pod. We're also that on Facebook that you can also just search Blowing Cartridges, uh, and I'm sure it'll come up because Facebook's a bit of a different beast from a search engine perspective. Uh, we still haven't branched out yet to threads or otherwise because we're just not sure yet as to where our efforts are best used. Um, but we do have old school email, which is blowingcartridge at gmail.com, which is where I got my wires crossed with Twitter. I mean, X, whatever it's called now, before. So, and of course, you can reach out to me at Egorino on most social medias. Uh, and they can reach out to, what's your username, uh, Brendan? At Tamazoid on X? Is it, I, I didn't even know there was a rename, but apparently. Oh, is, so. wow. You've been, you've been too busy. That's that. Yeah. Musk has rebranded Twitter to X.com and the it? logo is an X and we now Zeet instead of tweet. Is, is this just him announcing that he was a huge fan of DNX? Well, maybe, but. 
Look, we don't have time. This is, again, another tangent we could go on. But apparently when he was on the board or whatever of PayPal, he tried to rebrand PayPal to X. I think it's just a thing. He, he want, He's always wanted a website called X. I mean, yes, SpaceX, right? So he's, it's just a letter. Isn't his like, son called X something? Like It's a letter that means a lot to him, clearly. Uh, but it's funny just because, like, I don't know, when you look at a list of websites with X as a prominent part of their URL, the social media channel stands out as being very different to the other ones who are of a particular uh, type of video or photo content provider <laughs> um, and potentially with a lot more viruses as well. So yeah, that's, that's the world we in it again, very uh, come back to like just his history in keeping a record of stuff like I'm sure there's got to be archival uh, efforts for Twitter in its its previous form um, being made at the moment. Um, if not, it's certainly going to be one of the history books because, God, this is just a, a weird time. <laughs> <laughs> what a time to be alive. And uh, if you think it is a great time to be alive, you should go to your podcast app of choice and leave a review of our podcast. Leave a five-star review and uh, support our podcast that way. So we can get a greater reach of an audience, more people can listen to our podcast, and then perhaps people actually want to preserve our podcast. And don't worry, I have all the audio files on secured hard drives and uh, Blowing Cartridges podcast will be preserved for the future generations to enjoy. Exactly. But until next time, I don't know, do you have a good exit? I don't have a good exit. X is going <laughs> to give it to you. That'll have to do. Goodbye, everybody.